Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Jordan Thompson is an ATP champion for the first time, 29 years old. Karen Hachanov proves to be the only man in Doha who could beat Jakob Mensik. Sixth career title for Karen. Usually in weeks like this, when there are three ATP events, one gets the short end of the stick. I will say right away, this week, that is, believe it or not, the the 500, the one that's classified the highest in Rio de Janeiro, but because of uh, both scheduling and star power uh, in, in combination, those two things, it will be Rio getting the short end. Uh, I will say, Sebastian Baez beats Mariana Navone for his first 500 level title. Uh, Novone makes it, you know, another one of these out of nowhere golden swing stories. Didn't win an ATP match before the week, ended the Fonseca bonanza and makes the final here. But Baez basically crushes him in this championship match. Back to back years for Sebastian Baez winning a trophy on the golden swing. Last year it was Cordoba. I feel like he might be the new, the new king, the new king of the golden swing. Usually somebody holds that title. Kaspar Ruud reigned for several years. He was dominant. and But this year, he gave it up. He vacated it. He was like, somebody else can have it. I'm done. Before Ruud, it was Christian Garin. You felt like he was going to win a title or two in South America every single year. He was king of the Golden Swan. It's got to be somebody. Now, Baez, the way things are shaping up, I could see him being that guy for years to come. Murray also had a good take on Twitter. Andy Murray, that is. He said, unpopular opinion, South America should have a Masters 1000. That wasn't the whole tweet, but that was the essence of it. It was mostly a really good tweet. The one thing that was wrong about it was the unpopular opinion part. It's not an unpopular opinion because anybody who watches the Golden Swing can see that the level of enthusiasm, the level of engagement, the level of attendance when it comes to the fans in that part of the world and their love of tennis, I mean, it's second to none. It just is. It is the best environments, as good an environment you will see every single year. So it would be electric to bring all of the very best in the world to South America for a Masters 1000. It'd be incredible. I think everybody would love that. I don't know that that is the way things are moving, to be completely frank, when it comes to the the shifts and the trends that we're seeing within the schedule. I, I, I don't know that that's happening, but uh, I just wanted to say that because indeed Rio is the tournament that I am going to give the, the least coverage to today. But it is, it is not as a result of um, any lack of love for that event and uh, the South American tournaments in general. Jordan Thompson. Jordan Thompson wins his first career title in Cabo. This is not a one-week thing. It's, it's been building. Jordan Thompson has been balling for a while now. His worst loss by ranking this year. The worst defeat he's taken was to world number 25, Lorenzo Musetti. He is undefeated in first-round matches. He has made six quarterfinals in his last 14 events. That's coming in. So 
Now he's made seven quarterfinals in his last 15 events. Under the spotlight with everybody watching, he played Djokovic great at Wimbledon. That was a match, even though it was straight sets, you had to come away really impressed by what Jordan brought to the table. And of course, he beat Nadal in Brisbane. Almost lost that match, but you know he came back. He played really, really well. Uh, I think pretty highly of Rafa's level for the most part, and he got that win as well. How has Thompson gotten better at this stage in his career? I've grappled with the question. I don't feel 100% confident answering the question, but I want to at least try before I get into the final with Rude and breaking that down. Look, I always liked his backhand quite a bit. He was always very crafty and creative, very quick around the court, excellent volleys. So all of the things that make him unique and make him special, I, I've, I've acknowledged those things in the past, but I think the serve recently has become much more of a weapon, especially if you compare it to his first five or six years on tour, night and day from from that period of time. The forehand, I, I felt it was pretty limited and a little bit inconsistent. Now it's very, very solid. And uh, he seems to control his emotions a whole lot better than he used to. And it, it's always hard to tell how big a part of it something like that might be. But he, he was a person who, he was a player who would... Um, really ride a lot of up and down momentum and and get pretty negative pretty easily, pretty agitated. And I think it was probably something that did affect his play negatively, which isn't always the case, but I think it was for him. Uh, but frankly, what I want what I also want to say about Thompson in in all honesty here is that when he was a, a guy who was outside of the top 50, which was the the range that he occupied, for really the vast majority of his career. He's not a player that I formed a lot of strong opinions on. He's not a player that was particularly interesting to me as a prospect, as somebody with potential to do better. So this does come as somewhat of a surprise to me that Thompson has found what he's found here. And it also makes me a little bit less equipped to say, well, when he was finished, like, let me just read his year-end rankings real quick. We'll start, uh, he became a top uh, 100 player in 2016. So it's 79, 94, 72, 63, 51, 75, 84, 55 last year, because second half of last year, he was playing really well. And that and that started with the grass court season, and he made the final in Hertogenbosch. So there's been a big leap from him here. And now he's at a career-high ranking. Uh, right now, it's 40, but I'm talking on Sunday. So it's going to go up to whatever it's going to go up to. Uh, certainly a, a, a few spots at the very least. What I was curious going into this match against Kasparu, this final, I was interested to see if Thompson was going to do what Cam Norrie did in Australia. Cam Norrie beat Kasparu in Australia. By just daring him to hit backhand passing shots over and over again. Nori was 41 for 56 in a four-set match. And Cam isn't even a net rusher. So what is Jordan Thompson going to do if non-net rusher Cam Nori was at net 56 times in four sets? What might Thompson do? And just as important, 
What is Rude going to do? Is he going to have an answer if Jordan Thompson comes out on court and says, let's see if Casper can hit backhand passing shots. Let's see if he can do it. I don't think that Thompson was particularly committed to using that tactic over and over and over again. But when he really needed a point, when he was down, when he was under pressure, not with a lead, but when he was down and he needed a point, that's when I think he got much more diligent about coming forward and asking Root to hit backhand passing shots. And we are going, we are about to see, because I'll go through the screenshots, um, how many big points in this match were on the racket of Casper Rude's backhand pass. A whole lot. Before I go to the screenshots, I'll say this. You can serve and volley against Rude in two ways. On the first serve, Casper chips his forehand return more often than not. He holds a backhand grip. And if you hit to his backhand, he tries to hit over the ball. But if you hit to his forehand on the first serve, as long as he's standing in, he's going to chip the forehand return. You can serve and volley against that. On the second serve, Casper is usually going to move back. Not always. He's usually going to move back. When he moves back, you can hit a kick serve to his backhand. And you can serve and volley off of that. And it's very effective because even if Casper sees you coming and has plenty of time, you're never going to be too afraid of Kasparud hitting a backhand passing shot from 10 feet behind the baseline. You're just never going to be afraid of that. You're always going to feel like you're in a good position if that's the case. So particularly on the ad side, that is available. Those are the two ways that you can serve and volley against Rude. In general, when it comes to Casper's passing shots, I'm seeing a couple of issues. First of all, I think he lobs too much. I think he's too quick to go to the lob. He's going to hit some good ones. Of course, he's going to hit some good ones. But I think sometimes he goes to it. It's not open. So if you have a really good, comfortable overhead, I, I feel like you're going to get some overheads when you approach Rude's backhand because he's going to throw up lobs when they're not really there. And when I say they're not really there, all I'm saying is you're not crowding the net. You're not on top of the net to the point where a good lob is going to beat you over your head. That's all I'm saying. And then the other thing Casper likes to do off of his backhand pass is he likes to hit it through the middle. He likes to go right at you. And that can be a really good thing to do against a player who doesn't volley very well. One of my big pet peeves is when players are always going to the sideline and trying to hit passing shot winners against poor volleyers of the tennis ball. Because if you're a poor volleyer, let me make you hit one here. And in that case, going through the middle is oftentimes a really good play as long as you're able to keep it somewhat low or get some you know decent speed on it. Thompson is a terrific volleyer. So the idea that you're just going to hit it at him and find like basically a two-shot pass combination, it's it's tough to square because Thompson is as good a volleyer as he is. Thompson saved all six break points against in the first set. He was six of six. First couple rude made mistakes. The next several we saw our tactics come into play or our patterns that the patterns that I'm pinpointing. So here's 1540. Thompson serves and volleys. It's actually to the rude backhand, but Casper, he doesn't hit this clean. Even though it's a serve and volley, Thompson is going to end up with a ground stroke. 
uh, because the ball lands that short and he's on the service line. It actually takes Thompson two forehands to put this away, but eventually he puts this away. As you can see, he's in an awesome position to win the point off of this serve and volley because Rude mishit the return. So there's his forehand. There's his first forehand. Uh, we go to the next point. Now it's 30-40. Break point number two. Uh, better serve by Thompson. It's to the forehand. We get the chip, and Rude pops the chip up high in the air. That is not what he wants. And uh, Thompson has a very comfortable height for this backhand volley. Doesn't quite put it away, but um, basically sticks it into Rude's backhand. I guess Casper attempted a lob here, but it's not even close. And Thompson has this easy put away. Later on in the set, it is 5-3. Thompson got nervous in this game, and he actually, through the first eight or so points of this game, wasn't coming in, wasn't serving volleying. I was watching on TV being like, ugh, what is he doing here? Like, the nerves are killing his, his thinking and his, uh, his clarity here. But as the game progressed, I think he started to realize what was happening in this 5-3 game, and he started to force his way forward. Uh, this is actually a second serve, though, and it's a second serve that Rude is up on, but he does not hit a good return. As we know, this is trouble. If you're going to take the return early, you better hit it well. He doesn't make Thompson move. Thompson hits a big forehand inside in, lots of pace. Chip by Casper Rude, middle of the court. Approach shot opportunity for Jordan Thompson. An obvious approach shot opportunity. Which side do you think he's going to go to? You guessed it. He's going to the backhand. Is this a, a great approach? It's fine. It's like an average approach. Pretty solid. But here's an example. Rude goes to the lob. The lob is not open. Casper is deep in the court. Thompson, what is he? Six inches inside the service line. Where are you lobbing it to? If anything, you want to hit this low because you might be able to get it at, at Thompson's ankles. Uh, from where he's standing. So the lob is not the play. And it's not as if he's in a desperate, stretched-out situation. I mean, he had time to hit this backhand pass. Uh, Thompson actually doesn't finish this first overhead, but he's going to finish this second backhand volley. Short in the court. Rude gets up to it, but he uh, digs out this backhand angled slice. Is it? It's not really a slice. It's more of like a scoop. Uh, I feel like in tennis, we need better terminology for that shot. When players are coming up to the short ball, either the drop shot or the drop volley, and they kind of dink, I guess that I guess pickleball is hijacked that term, but they kind of dink it cross court, short angle. It's like we don't have a great word for that shot in the sport. Obviously, you're using a continental grip, but it's not really a slice. I digress. Uh, so that was the first break point of this game. Here's the second break point of this game. This is another second serve. Casper, I guess, makes an adjustment from the last one. He doesn't want to stand in and kind of hit a mediocre backhand return on the rise again. So he actually goes back. Thompson sees that. Now he's going to do the kick wide, serve and volley. Rude's got plenty of time to see him coming, and it's not like a nasty kick serve, but look at the, the return. It's right at Thompson. It's a routine volley. Again, drop volley from Tamo and Rude with our favorite shot that he misses cross-court again. Uh, the shovel. Should we call it the shovel? He shovels it cross-court wide. All right, so in summary, 
First set, there were six break points. Thompson got to net on Rude's backhand on four out of the six. Won all of those points. Pretty significant, huh? Uh, let's go to the second set. Let's go to the tie break. This is start of the tie break. Uh, Rude has the first point, and Thompson first serve to Casper's forehand. No serve and volley here, but we get the chip return. It's short, but it's pretty low, so maybe it's a good thing that Thompson didn't serve and volley. Uh, Thompson approached to the backhand. Rude, open stance, backhand pass. It goes right at Thompson, and Casper sells out into the open court. Jordan drop volley the other way. Rude has absolutely zero play on it. So again, that's a backhand pass for Rude that just goes right at Thompson. Next point, one all in the second set tiebreak. First serve out wide. Block forehand return by Rude. It's short in the middle of the court. Thompson, approach shot inside out to the Rude backhand. I know it looks right now like this is some amazing uh, approach shot that Rude is barely going to get to, but there's actually not that much speed on it. And Rude, he's there. This is a decent look. I'm not, it's not, look, don't kid yourself. This isn't an easy backhand pass, but it's one that you might be able to do something with if you're highly skilled at hitting this shot. And Rude is not. He hits this one cross court into the alley. Even if it was, even if it was in, I think Thompson was there to knock away the volley. So uh, there's another example where Thompson uh, starts off the tie break with, you know, a couple of, um, a couple of holds, if you will, to to start that tie break where he's just hitting the first serve, approaching the rude backhand, and winning the point that way. So uh, this was fairly big, especially because Rude was pretty good from the baseline. And as I mentioned, you know, when Thompson got tight with a lead in this match, he stopped coming forward. He basically just tried to play Rude's backhand from the baseline, and it didn't work at all. So let me be balanced in my assessment of Rude here as I just kind of demonstrated how lackluster I believe he is on the backhand pass, generally speaking. But from the baseline with the way Thompson was trying to play it, his backhand was actually highly effective in this match. Thompson off of his forehand from neutral positions kept trying to pattern change down the line. And if it's not precise and you don't have Rude pulled off the court and you try to go down the line, you open up the runaround. I mean, Rude just kept running around that pattern change forehand line and hitting forehands inside out off of that. And then the other thing that I was seeing was Thompson just kind of peppering Rude's backhand wing and not making Casper move at all. And when Rude is hitting closed stance backhands from stationary positions, he actually hits really good cross-court trades. And I thought his depth was good and he gets a lot of spin on it. And one thing that I think he's improved from last year was he's hugging the baseline more and taking, and, and, uh, taking more time away. And this puts Thompson in a really tough position. When Rude hits a really high-quality backhand trade cross-court, you hate that. You can't go down the line off of it because there's too much depth and too much quality. 
But if you go cross court and it's not good, you know that Casper, you know that Casper is already moving to his left to get a forehand on the next ball whenever he hits a good deep backhand cross court. So it's it's very, very impactful for Casper when he's hitting good backhands cross court. And Thompson was allowing him to kind of do that in the baseline exchanges. Now, I felt that the baseline patterns that I'm talking about for Rude, it almost completely made up for Thompson outserving Casper by a significant margin and net rushing Casper and having those patterns to rely on, especially on serve in those big moments. It almost completely made up for it. I felt there were too many blips on Rude's forehand. Just a few too many big mistakes on Rude's forehand. And that prevented Casper's advantage from the back of the court from being wide enough where it was able to overcome the other things that were happening in the match that favored Thompson. That was my read on it. Now, before I move on from before I move on from the Rude backhand thing, let me say also in the semifinal against Tsitsipas, the fact that Rude's backhand was way better than Steph's backhand was probably the main reason why Casper won that match. It wasn't even close. Casper's backhand was way better than Steph's. Tsitsipas was not making backhands under pressure. He just wasn't. Uh, he was missing the court. Plain and simple. And whatever you want to say about the limitations on Kasparud's backhand, one thing he's not going to do is just miss a ton of rally balls. So... That's a big advantage for him. And also, I also felt his depth and his ability to keep it away from Tsitsipas' backhand, uh, sorry, Tsitsipas' forehand, was better than Tsitsipas' ability to do the same to Rude. The irony of all this backhand talk is uh, Thompson's backhand deserves a shout-out for being ridiculously good in the second set. Uh, in the game where he broke back in the second set, he made three backhand passing shots. Isn't that funny? Like, just, you know, coincidence that in a match where Rude's inability to pass was a big deal, um, Thompson made three in the in the game that he broke back in the second set. It's also funny to me that on, on Monday Match Analysis, we're, we're talking about backhand passing shots two weeks in a row because it's probably because I talked about it with Demon Orr just hitting every approach shot to center's backhand and... Yannick was just sitting on it, and he, he made some really big passes in what was a really close match. Um, I think it's kind of rare that this is a big deal in a tennis match, but now it's two weeks in a row we're seeing that it can be a big deal. So Thompson um, not only hits all those passing shots to get the break of serve back in the second, he gets the, the lead in the second set. Starting the game, going up love 30, hitting a sick backhand drop shot. And it's a really good tool for Thompson because he slices his backhand and hits the backhand drop shot off of the same take back. And it's really hard to tell which one he's going to. That's also my best drop shot. My only good drop shot is when uh, I hit the backhand slice a lot and then eventually I can hit a drop shot off of it. Anyway. And then a sweet backhand return down the line to go up love 30, where it's a kick out wide, and Thompson takes it early on the rise, redirects down the line on the ad side. If you can time that return, and boy, it's hard to time off of any kind of heavy kick serve, 
it's a it's an extremely damaging serve knowing that Rude is looking for the next ball forehand, knowing that he's not positioned in the middle of the court. He's slightly off to the left because that's where you serve it from. So if you're able to take time away, and again, you're taking it on the rise and you're changing direction. It's very difficult. But if you can do it, it's going to be a winner. Thompson was beautiful there to go up love 30. And that's a return that Rude just doesn't have on his backhand. If we want to talk about limitations. How often is Casper taking backhand returns early on the rise, redirecting it down the line off of a second serve. Doesn't really have that one. Thompson ended up breaking there and serving it out the rest of the way. Um, I think Root is playing pretty well, by the way. I'm just not really seeing the serve do enough on a hard court. And obviously the backhand stuff was a huge factor in the Nori loss. And I thought it was a huge factor here. Uh, but massive congratulations to Jordan Thompson. He's worked really hard and... Um, I don't think this was a one-week thing. I'm pretty adamant that it wasn't a one-week thing because it's been the last six months now where I've taken notice of his level. It's been a step up from anything we've ever seen from him. Um, he also, he already had a couple of finals in his career. He got broken serving for the match in the second set. And at that point, I was just feeling so much pain in my heart, to be honest with you. And I usually don't I don't root for anybody when I watch these matches, particularly when I don't make a pick, because I, I do slightly root for my picks to be correct when I do make picks, but that it, it hurt my heart because I just, a 29-year-old, it's your life's work, you're trying to win your first title, to get broken serving for it, that stings a lot, and I, I was kind of hoping at that point that Thompson was going to win, and he did. Let's go to Doha. Karen Hachanov, he's had a pretty on-brand year. Uh, he took an upset first week of the season, but since then, he's been rock solid. He lost to Sinner at the Australian Open in the fourth round. He lost to Dimitrov in Marseille in a third-set tiebreak. And uh, this week, draw opened up a little bit. I mean, it was an ATP 250. Uh, Popper and Mensik were playing really well, in my opinion, but he didn't play a top-40 opponent. And he goes all the way, and he converts it into a title which is kind of a big deal for him because it was a big problem trying to win these kinds of titles for, for a long time in his career. He won four in 2018, and then he didn't win another until last year, and he did it after the U.S. Open in, in Zuhai. So now, at least with this title, I, I do feel like he can be pretty confident about his ability to finish weeks. So from a, a mental standpoint, I think it's, it's good for him to kind of fully get over that. And the, the level of tennis was really high. So my my thoughts on his performance against Mensik is, first of all, it was completely nerveless. And he's playing an unfamiliar opponent, a guy who's 18 years old, and he's the favorite in the final. It's not that I thought Hachanov, who has played a ton of big matches, was going to have any major issues in this department, but it was as nerveless a performance as you could really possibly see. Great first serve percentage, north of 70. Really good at landing the first serve out wide and then hitting a big plus one into the open court. And crucially, he can do that off of both wings. There's really nowhere to hide based on where you put the return. And he was extremely consistent from neutral, which is, in my opinion, I always say this, it's his best quality. His consistency is his best quality. Don't let the six foot six fool you. He dragged Mensik 
into the physical trenches, and he absolutely thrived there. And he got a big payoff in the second set where Mensik's level dipped, and I thought that was mainly physical. And you can't blame him. Another thing I saw was a lot of awesome backhand cross-court, backhand down-the-line combinations for Hachinov. I just I think the way he strings together the deep, penetrating cross-court backhand uh, with stepping in and taking the next one down the line, it, he's really, really good at it. Um, it was a, it was something that I saw over and over again. The first set was super, super close. Obviously, there were set points both ways. It was 12-10 in the tiebreak. Could have gone either way. Second set, that's where Hachanov was just going to try to keep making everything hard for Mensik. And Jakob could feel at that point, like, I cannot maintain this for two more sets at this kind of level. Uh, he just couldn't do it. And you could see for Mensik, he dialed up the aggression a little bit. Consistency went down a little bit. That made things easier for Hachanov. So this was a classic kind of, look, I think we see this a lot with Karen. You know, in the first set, a lot of it was just his ability to play big points well. And then in the second set, the physicality and the mental focus that he brings to every point, every rally, and it doesn't matter if it's the fifth shot of the rally or the 20th shot of the rally, You just he just never bails out and he never makes a bad decision. That just weighs on you. That weighs on you. And for Mensik, who was probably having certain thoughts about his fatigue and his legs, he wasn't going to be able to do that for three sets. And and Hachanov was going to be able to do that for three more sets. So the second set was a little bit easier. Although, Mensik hung in there. He got broken in the first game of the second set. He held the rest of the way. He was able to push through the, the fatigue pretty well. Hachanov... Again, never gave him a bad service game. Just didn't happen. But the first set tiebreak was really the the deciding uh, sequence of this match. There's no doubt about it. So first, I just want to go through the mini breaks here um, to talk about how this breaker went down and what were the major factors in Hachanov ultimately winning this. Uh, 14 to 12, by the way. I think I said 12-10. That's wrong. It was 14 to 12. All right, first mini break came on the second point. Mensik hit a really good first serve, short return, moved up to the service line to hit a plus one forehand and hit it inside out. Hachanov just stayed home in the corner and the approach shot ended up going right at him. Karen struck the backhand down the line pass for a winner. Pretty easy pass, but this was really all about the anticipation. A couple points later, it's 2-1. Hachanov... Uh, hits a first ball forehand into the net. Rare, unforced error for Karen. Nice, solid return for Mensik on this ball, but nothing that was good enough that it should have drawn an error. Two all. Next mini break goes the way of Mensik. Hachanov hits a nice serve, plus one forehand cross court, has a really routine backhand volley, and just blows it. He hits it into the net. Hachanov's volleys were awful. They were awful in this match. But uh, sometimes if you're as good from the back of the court and you serve as well as Karen did, it just doesn't matter. So Mensik's up the mini break at 5-4. He ends up double faulting at 5-4. And from here, from 5-all 
they win 15 service points in a row. It was spectacular. The level of serving on both sides was awesome to see. It was immaculate. So props to Mensik, props to Hachanov. What a display. At 12-13, Mensik hit a, he finally missed a first serve. He hit a slow second serve, and Hachanov had a forehand. He hit it inside out, ripped it, forced the error. Pretty weak second serve there for Mensik. I do think that part of his game will get better. It will start to catch up with his first serve. And that was all she wrote in the first set tiebreak. Other than the mini breaks, there were a couple of spectacular moments for Hachanov that were absolutely crucial. One at 2-5, unbelievable point where Mensik was fully in charge and Hachanov hit a backhand lob to neutralize and reset the point. That was phenomenal. And then later on... Uh, he would hit a, a great backhand down the line, a great forehand inside-out approach shot right into the corner to force the error behind that. It was a really long point. It was constant quality from Hachanov, unbelievable. And he would have he would have been down 2-6. So he doesn't win this point at 2-5. He wouldn't have won the tiebreak. And then at 10-all, second serve. So another chance here where we have a missed first serve. They get into a very, very, very long rally. And again, Karen is just a machine. An absolute machine. And every ball is deep. And he's just not missing. He's a ball machine. That's it. And eventually, Mensik is going to hit a forehand down the line. It's going to go wide. And was it a high percentage attempt? No. But once you're into the 20s here, it just becomes about shot tolerance. And Mensik actually has quite a bit of shot tolerance. But he's not Hachanov. So... Uh, the, the one thing also I will say, though, Mensik did have a chance to come into net early in that point. Didn't do it. And eventually he got neutralized as a result. One other thing. Regret for Mensik. He lost his forehand return. And there was a set point at 5-6 where he had a makeable forehand return. Didn't make it. And at 8-all, another one, forehand return didn't make it. These were off of pretty average Hachanov first serves. So those are all my thoughts when it comes to the first set tiebreak. I talked about Hachanov and what I what I think about his performance, and I don't have anything more to say about him. Let me end on Mensik. Because um, and I know, you know, if you didn't see the the mailbag with uh with Abigail, I encourage you to check that out. That was a really good conversation where we do talk about uh Mensik and Fonseca in depth. I want to summarize my thoughts here, though, as well. These guys, these young guys, they come in, they have a big result. And what happens on this show? I, I praise them. You know, I talk about what impressed me. Something always does. As long as they're beating good players who are playing good tennis. I mean, if they're, if they're young and, and they're bright prospects, something is going to jump out and impress me almost always. So, of course, um, I, I praise them when they do things like this. But that doesn't mean they're all the same. And I just want to try to make a, a differentiation here. I want to put put a stake in the ground right now and say, I like Mensik the best. I like him the best. You can give me Von Asha. You can give me Fies. You can give me Mickelson. You could give me Majedovic. You could give me Jerry Shung. You could give me Prismich. Whatever names you want to throw my way, 20 and under, 
some of those guys might be 21, but I think for the most part, I'm going 20 and under there. I like Mensik the best. I just think he's the best. Now that could change, but right now that's where I'm at. And I'll tell you why. For me, he's going to be an elite serve. The World Feed announcers in this final were comparing his motion to Nick Kyrgios. I think it's a great comparison. It is silky, smooth, flowy. He's six foot four. It's a pinpoint serve. It's got great tempo. He's got a low toss. It's pretty hard to read. I can go on and on. The serve is a gem, and he's only 18. And he hits spots. It's wild to me. Hachanov, after the match, said at some times it felt like he was playing John Isner. Do I think we're meant to take that literally? No. But the serve is special. Uh, the ball striking, to me, will also be elite. I love him off of both wings. I think there's consistency. I think there's repeatability. I think there's power. And then finally, the court coverage, the athleticism. That is what I did not expect. I called his match on T2 against Andrei Rublev. Oh, no, I called his match against Murray first. But even, it really stuck out against Rublev because Rublev is going to dictate against you. Like, Rublev is going to give you world-class forehands Corner to corner to corner to corner to corner. And he's going to go bleh, 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 bleh. And that is going to be a really good test of how well you move. And Mensik was staying in those rallies for an extra however many balls, whatever. He was staying in those rallies. And that I didn't expect because I knew he was a big kid and I knew he hit the ball big and I knew he served well. I watched him against Taylor Fritz at the U.S. Open last year. And maybe, and he got smoked in that match. And maybe I saw blips of that, but I just think the way he was moving into corners, hitting on the move, hanging in rallies, that's what I didn't expect for a guy who serves as big and hits as big as Jakob Mensik. Oh, and is as big at six foot four and not a lanky, skinny six foot four, a pretty strong, muscular six foot four. And lastly, this is just the cherry on top. Because if these things weren't true, I wouldn't worry. But he's already drop-shotting. He's already volleying. So it's not as if it's just power through the court is all he has and all you have to cover for. He's also doing those other things. I, I'm not going to say you know his hands look like Benoit Paire out there, but he's trying it. And uh, he's at least been serviceable in those areas. So when I look for prospects... I want to see two-way players. I want to see players who can be have the potential to be among the best offensively and defensively, if I'm going to boil this down. And that's what I saw for Alcaraz. Not that I'm really apples to apples comparing the two, but uh, for me, Mensik has that obvious potential to do that, to be elite offensively, which I think is a sure thing. Elite defensively, I think, is a possibility. And he just answers so many questions in the affirmative for me. By the way, he's already shown a lot of really impressive physicality in his game. Rarely can I look at an 18-year-old and say, there aren't a lot of questions there that I can't answer. And for some guys, there are questions, and eventually they turn into yeses. But for the first couple of years, their shoulder shrugs. Like, oh, is he ever going to figure that out? Is he ever going to improve that? 
and they have a chance to do it. I'm saying Mensik right now at 18. I don't even know what the question is. That's what I'm saying. Because for Mickelson, I'm asking, does he move well enough? Von Asha and Prismich, are they too underpowered to be top tenors down the road? Fees. Like, does he do anything better than Mensik other than movement? Is his forehand better? Is his backhand better? Is his serve better? I guess I'll leave like Fonseca and and I didn't mention Fonseca. I didn't want to because I literally just watched him like basically for the first time. Um, and I'm just not ready to really say if I like Fonseca or Mensik better. If, if you give me Fonseca versus Mensik, I don't know. But the rest of them, I'm ready to make that declaration. Mensik blew me away this week. I don't know what he could have done. That could have left me more impressed. The draw comes out tomorrow. It is your one-stop shop for all the best tennis content on the internet curated into one place. Newsletter that drops every Tuesday. To subscribe, go to thedraw.tennis. So I want to end on that reminder. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.